And welcome to the Extra Podcast. My name is Andy Steiger. I'll be hosting today. This is episode 242. We're going to jump into things in just a moment. But before we do, I am sure that uh, the the crew that's with me uh, is looking forward to talking about the Super Bowl. We've got Jeff with us today. Yep, yep. We've got Crystal. Welcome. Thank you. She's really excited about talking about the Super Bowl. Oh, she's stoked. Yeah, she's, and it's, she's it's, wearing orange today. <laughs> I wasn't. She's got a flag. Big. I was wearing orange and blue. Big hand with a one going, a finger going up. Um, hey, welcome here. Thank you. It's always good to have you. And we got Ezra. Hey, hey, hey. I'm here. And of course, we have the intern who will say nothing but make sure that the podcast is awesome. Thank you, Mr. Matthew Crocker. Croker. Crocker. Crocker. I yeah, had it right. It doesn't matter. It croquet, doesn't matter. Croquet. Jeff, what do you think? I think Panthers, we were all Broncos. right. I think all of us were right. I think that the last time we spoke on the podcast, we all picked Denver when we were right. Which goes to show you that God's on our side. Right? Broncos. <laughs> we all agreed. The Broncos brought in the win. We're all prophets. Though I will say, I thought it would be like a low-scoring game. It was a low-scoring game. Like 24, dude. 24 is a lot. No, it's not a lot. No, it's not. I, I, it's a, I thought I thought it might be like a 17, 14, something no, like that. No, no. Past twenty, that becomes high scoring. No, and no. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect that the Panthers would actually give up twenty four points in a Super Bowl. I yeah. didn't expect that. Just given how they had played before, that was a surprise to me. Well, they gave up. They gave up twenty four to Seattle. They did right in in one half of football. So it was always possible. Yes, they did. So I'm just saying that I actually think that the that the second half of the Seattle game was evidence that they were both stoppable, and you could score on them. You know, I think if if uh, Seattle was awake the first the first quarter, yeah, we would have been awesome. Game, if only Seattle would have won if, this thing. If they were only, awake. if only. But Denver yeah. amazing. They were fantastic. Good Crystal, oh, Crystal, you so a football good. fan? I watch here and there. I'm not a diehard, <laughs> but I was watching. Half the game. Had, the game. You I and I were in the same house. We were, we were watching it the same place. Yeah. Yeah. I had to leave for my son's hockey game. He was so bummed. He okay. schedules a hockey game on Super Bowl Sunday. I know that's brutal. Canadians yeah. do that too. Well, it's funny. I did. I st- I uh, scheduled a leaders meeting with my young adults <laughs> that evening. No way. And I did. I did. Oh yeah, they came. Did they're, you have the game dedicated. on? No. Well, the game had ended. We oh. we had it after the game. The game lasted something like four and something hours. It, it is long. the worst, most interminable game in the history of games. You know, there were some good commercials, at least though, that brought you. That were kept there? You, that kept you. I thought. I thought so. No, I enjoyed some you, of them. But this the year. Canadian. The next year, apparently, the, in Canada, we get the we get the U.S. commercials, I which tell will you, change the whole dynamic. As an American, that is just that drives me crazy. How we don't get the same programming here in Canada wow. as in the U.S. It's it's we're protecting just, our Canadian culture. You don't uh, care about jobs. It, well, you know, I think it's more than that. I mean, it's like, come on. See, Why can't we live stream it, you know, for free like they get to do in the U.S.? But you like, see, the thing it's a, it's a money it's a money thing because the commercials pay the NFL billions. Yeah, I just don't know. So I, get, I think yeah. so. So I think I mean for the U.S. market, yes. But then you have the Canadian broadcasting um, network, so CTV yeah. or TSN, they will want a piece of that pie. And so, whatever commercial is played in between Super Bowl, then. There's got to be someone has to make money somewhere. Yeah, so they're all complaining now, though that that's that because because they're they're the CRTC is allowing the the um, the U.S. stations to have their their um, commercials shown next here in year. Canada <clears throat> next year. That mm-hmm. is going to cost Canadians jobs. So hmm. 
So we're not, you know what? We're not taking sides in this. We right. though are pure consumers, and we want to see the commercials. That's it. Like if you're gonna, if there's so many commercials in the game, don't you want to see? Because I was counting one of the commercials in Canada. They played them four. They played it four times, and that's just, and it wasn't even a good one. Hmm. So we need better, better commercials. Speaking of consumers, I need to make a, uh, I need to make a confession before we jump into any questions here. Uh, this is a safe place. I, I think that I can share. It's just us, Andy. <laughs> I went, I finally uh, got a babysitter, and Nancy and I were able to go see Star Wars. And I, I must confess, I thought it was so boring. Wow. I thought it was brutal. Wow. Brutal. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, A. <laughs> Steiger confession. at Northview.org. <laughs> you might not be invited back. <laughs> all you, uh, all you, all you, oh, all you Wookiees out there, yeah. A. Steiger. Unbelievable. Anyway, I was hoping so, for that. So it was a really? waste. I it, really was. That was a good movie. It was a waste of a babysitting service for you. No, I, it was you a good know, movie. It was one of those things that you needed to go see, but I was expecting better. Really? I it was. was. Good. No, I it was, was good stuff. All right. Well, I'm just telling you. That was my confession. Hey, let's jump into the questions. We've got uh, a question <laughs> on forgiveness here, which I think is fitting. Some listeners may need to forgive me. Uh, yeah, I'm still, hey, I'm still a Star Wars fan. But at any rate, uh, forgiveness. We want to look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. A <clears throat> listener asks us the following question, and I think this is a great question, very practical. If somebody wrongs you and chooses to deny his own sin against you, do we simply understand that is sin and forgive him even without repentance? Or does there always have to be repentance involved with forgiving? What procedure do we follow if no repentance is given? So let me just break this question down for you. If someone sins against us and doesn't acknowledge their sin, do we have to forgive that person? It's a good question. Uh, we've dealt with it before, actually, in our podcast, and uh, had so a good give and take. So, you know, I... So here's the challenge that I have here, is that it says in Scripture, uh, in fact, I think in that text, Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other places it says, forgive as Christ forgave you. So the question then becomes, does Christ forgive sins that are not repented of? And the answer is, well, no, he doesn't. So that means then, and I'm asking this, that means then that we don't need to forgive when someone isn't sorry for what they've done? This gets tough for me because I, I do think that there are some examples in Scripture of, uh, and in life of people who have uh, forgiven. But see, I want to play around with that word a little bit because... Uh, so I'm going to... Look, Romans... Um, Romans, thir- uh, Romans, am I thinking right? 12. Okay. It says this, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So this is dealing with somebody who is not, you know, some, somebody who's given you grief and you don't, and you don't, you know, they're not <laughs> sorry about it. Rejoice with those who weep, weep with those who weep. Uh, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 17 of Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, so I want, what I'm trying to do is figure out what do you call that? Mm-hmm. What do you call the handing of somebody over to God? I mean, your posture toward that person should look the same as someone who has actually done the forgiveness that we're talking about, right? Because you feed them if they're hungry and and, uh, they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. So hospitable and kindness and things, but it doesn't mean that the the affront is gone. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. So I don't know what to call that. I I don't know what to call it. When you say, well, I'm going to hand this person over to the, to the wrath of God, because there's a language here, right? Leave yeah. it to the wrath of God. So you don't need to avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. Instead, yeah. you ought to bless them when they persecute you. Instead, you ought to be hospitable when you should be mean. So the posture of a Christian towards somebody who has wronged them is, yeah. is described here. I just don't know what to call that. I, I kind of want to say it looks like forgiveness to me, but it's not forgiveness of... Uh, of the of the debt is that wrong? I mean, you guys, I'm thinking see, out loud here. See, see, I'm thinking, uh, I'm looking at uh, so Acts seven. So this is Stephen, who's being stoned by these people who have rejected the message, and obviously these people want to take his life unjustly, and so as they're stoning, so as they begin to stone him, Stephen, falling on his knees, he cries out in a loud voice, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them," which is a very interesting response toward people who are now violent against him. Which and obviously they had beaten him, they had dragged him, they were stoning him, they, they were violently against him um, for, for, for standing up for Christ and proclaiming. And so he asks God not to hold it against him. So in my mind, I'm assuming that Stephen was forgiving them. Well, th- that's not actually what the text says, though. It says that he's asking for God to forgive them. I don't, yes. I don't, I don't know. Well, what about Jesus, though, when he's on the cross and says, Father, forgive yeah, them totally. for, the, for they don't know what right. they're doing? Right, he does the same thing that Stephen yeah. does, or flips that around. Does Stephen does what, what Jesus, Jesus did. does. Yeah. Yeah. I think the impetus for us forgiving is not that person's repentance, but the fact that we have been forgiven so much. Mm-hmm. And so I think for our sake, because we've been forgiven so much, we're called to forgive others. But that doesn't mean that God is necessarily going to hold that person as being in the right position with them or with us. Like, the, God's going to hold them responsible for their actions. Right. But we're called to forgive because of the grace that's been showed to us. Right. So I think that's my point by reading Romans 12, is that the posture that's described there looks like forgiveness to me, even though in the posture is being driven by someone who has said, I'm not going to avenge, I'm going to leave it to God's wrath, mm-hmm. which is an interesting statement, right? It's the Lord's to... It's the Lord's. In other words, I can hand this over to God who's going to do what's right, and I can live toward this person uh, peaceably, uh, even though I know that God is going to do something, that God might very well judge them for it. Well, doesn't this tell us then that when we're looking at Matthew chapter 6, that God's saying, listen, I'm looking at the heart of what's going on with this person, particularly with regards to forgiveness. If, If they're not willing to forgive is a demonstration of what's going on with that person, right? With regards to God's willingness to forgive them. Mm. Would you agree with that? 
I think. Where, where with us, we're not judging the heart. Like, I, I don't know what's going on in Jeff. Right. Right. All I know is what's going on in me. And God's saying, yeah, and you need to make sure that, that what's going on with you is right. So, but I think that's what I'm trying to describe is what's going on with you ought to be the handing over to God yeah. who does right. things right. So, right. I, again, mm-hmm. I, yeah. the language of forgiveness is, can be helpful, but I'm trying to put a real, make it very tactile. I'm trying to make it really, like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. I actually think it's not, hey, forget it. It's no big deal. Right. I actually think it is, no, it's a huge deal. But I'm not going to avenge myself. It's not mine to repay. It's the Lord's to repay. So I'm going to live peaceably with you. Mm-hmm. And that's going to look like, hey, if you're hungry, I'm going to give you something to eat. If you're thirsty, I'll give you something to drink, right? I'm going to live lovingly toward you. But I also, at the same time, know that, you, listen, you, you might, you, you still have to deal with God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is you what see, I tell people I see, sometimes see. In, in counseling meetings. I say, because they can't get over some of their, their anger towards someone. And I, I will say to them, look, you need to leave this with the Lord and, and trust that He's going to do, do what's right. And your posture toward that other person needs to look like this now. You need to live peaceably with them. I'm not asking you to be their best pal, but I'm telling you that if they're in need, right, you don't. You don't hold back help. That's the idea, right? Giving mm-hmm. somebody somebody who's thirsty something yeah. to drink or hungry something to eat. It's interesting. Jesus himself will say, you know, pray for those who persecute you. You know, praying for them. Uh, love your enemy. And and some of the things that Jesus is saying, obviously, for most of us, loving our enemies, loving an enemy is the, the last thing you want to do. Because if you're going to love someone, then there's, they have to 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 feel the 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 benefits of this love. What that what does that look like? Charity, kindness. What you're talking mm. about? If they're hungry, you feed them and so on. Help them if they get in a jam. Jesus also says, you know, pray for them. Then the question becomes: So what am I praying? For these people, what am I actually telling the Heavenly Father? And my thought, my thought would be, uh, our lives ought to, uh, we ought to seek to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We are always proclaiming Christ, seeking that people who are around us not only hear the gospel from, uh, from us, but also see Christian life modeled so that God would grant them to repent Absolutely. and come to saving yeah. faith. And I think so what Stephen's doing and what Jesus yeah, is doing. That's the driver. Right. So God will avenge, yes, but ours is to try and But I think that's my point, is that to leave it in the hands of God. And I think your will, our heart should, should be that the person comes to repentance. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. That's the way our heart is. The person comes to repentance. But that's between them and God at that point. Mm-hmm. Your posture toward the person who has wronged you doesn't need to be one of strident opposition. Yes. It doesn't need to be. It can be charitable. Yes. I think that's my point. But it could be charitable while in the back of your mind knowing, look, just because I'm being charitable to you doesn't mean that you've dealt with this between the Lord, and you. that's really where you're going to need to to make this mm-hmm. right. And, and he, mm-hmm. of course, is the great judge, and he's the one who's going to be able to determine whether it was right or wrong. And I think for that's us right. for us is just to continually ask the Spirit of God to to help us live in that space where... You have someone who has deeply offended or deeply wounded you, and now you endeavoring to be charitable toward them and loving toward them. It's not easy. Mm. It's not an easy place to live, and I think it's only by the Spirit of God that we can be able to do this 
to love this enemy so much so that we pray that the Lord would grant them to repent, that the Lord would bless them, and, and if they're in a need, that you could willingly, with a clear conscience, help them. It's not an easy thing to do. Is it something that you do only one time? No. No, this is ongoing. Yeah, continually, yeah. I think the thing people get mixed up to is sometimes forgiveness and reconciliation. I think they are mm. not necessarily the same thing. Like, I think you can forgive somebody, but you might not be able to be reconciled to them in the sense that you might not be able to live in the same house with them or work with them or whatever because of something that's happened. You may still have to have some distance. You may have to have some boundaries around yourself because this person repeatedly offends you in a way that's very harmful, right? right? So it doesn't mean that you have to forgive mm. and just continue on in a pattern of allowing yourself to be beat up over and over again or whatever. So there, mm-hmm. there might be pieces you need to put in your life to stop someone from offending you, but you still have to have a heart of forgiveness um, well, towards them. I think, too, of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says that, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? That we've been given this ministry of, of helping to see people reconciled with God and people reconciled with each other, Right. But that doesn't mean, and I think sometimes that's, that's just as practical as, you know, praying for people and praying that they would be reconciled with God. And to the best of our ability, there's only, there's only so much that we can do in, with regards to that reconciliation. Uh, I think that's what you're getting at, Crystal, and there's a time where you actually need to be... As long as it depends on you, yeah, yeah. Exactly, live at peace wording. with all yeah. men. Exactly. Well, we're going to uh, switch gears here and go into another question. Uh, this question comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. It's, a, it's an interesting passage. Uh, we, a listener was writing in about, it seems that God or Jesus is commending dishonesty. And the uh, listener says this or asks this, While I was reading in the beginning of Luke chapter 16, I came across a parable of a manager who believed he would be fired and therefore goes and lessens the debts of those in debt to his master in attempt to receive favor from them when he's fired. The manager is uh, commended for his dishonest efforts. What do you think is a good way to understand what unrighteous earnings are in today's world? I fear that this could easily be misunderstood and some start ripping uh, off uh, legitimate business people. Um, so can I start by saying thoughts. something very broad about yep. uh, parables in general? Parables mm-hmm. uh, are stories with a, with a single point, okay? They have an overall point. One of the challenges that people... It doesn't mean that the different parts of the parable don't have some sort of metaphorical significance or don't... don't you know, like the parable of the prodigal son, the father in the story is like God, and you can't. I mean, there are different, there are different um, characters and things like that. But pulling a parable apart to try to teach fifteen different things is really not the approach Jesus is is after when he tells a story. He's telling the story to make a single overriding point. So I'll give you a little context here. Luke chapter fifteen is an interesting is an interesting passage it has three different stories in it that talk about lost uh, things that are lost being found so you have a coin that's lost you have a sheep that's lost and you have a, a boy who's son. lost yeah. Yeah. and you could make we could make arguments about you actually have two sons in that story and you can figure out which one of the boys is lost probably both but the whole parable the, all three of those parables are aimed at the Pharisee. So you start in Luke 15. And that's who Jesus to the is begin- speaking Well, to. listen to the beginning of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So he told them this parable. So he tells them these three parables, basically about somebody, something lost, being found, and the person who found it having great joy about it. And he's trying to say to them, shouldn't that be our posture when these lost people find me? Mm-hmm. And, and they are, you know, that we, 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 uh, they get new life. Shouldn't we, instead of grumbling and complaining that sinners are eating with me, instead rejoice because sinners are eating with me, that the sheep has been found, the coin has been found, the prodigal son boy has been found? He ends the whole chapter 15 with the, he includes the older brother in the, par- in the prodigal son. And that's, of course, these, these Pharisees. He's saying, you're just like these Pharisees who are standing outside complaining and grumbling when inside there's a party going on, just come and join the party. You've received so much, right? Come and join the party. And that's basically what his point is. The, what's interesting to me is Luke 16 follows immediately after, after this. And so I, I, I still think that you have as a backdrop here Jesus speaking in kind of prophetic ways toward the Pharisees. Toward the Pharisees. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you need to be looking for yourself here. Well, what is he trying to say to these Pharisees? What is he trying to get after? Well, it's interesting. Curious your thoughts on this, uh, Jeff. Daryl Bach, who he's a great New Testament scholar, I really appreciate. Now he would he would interpret this parable um, by saying, and I and I I think I disagree with him on this, but saying that the business the the manager is actually cutting his profits out, and so he's being shrewd in that. You know he, you know he's cutting his profits out so that he can make favor, you know, favorable business arrangements with these other people, so that when he is let go, you know that they'll remember him. Right, Crystal. Maybe you could read it. The whole thing. Yeah, read Luke sixteen. What is it? Verses one through thirteen. Thirteen. This is the story that we're talking about here. And so then the other way to interpret it is, as she reads is, no, just take it face value. This is what Jesus is saying. He also said to the disciples. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my, mani- since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the internal dwellings. Can I stop really quickly there? We would interpret this, though, as being that uh, the manager in this case is, is God, right? And, and the, I'm sorry, the, the, rich the rich man is God, and the manager is the Pharisees, wouldn't we? That's how I would read it. In the it. context. Yeah. So, so here, here are a bunch of people who are, he's basically saying to them at the very get-go, um, uh, what he's called and said to them, what does it hear about? Turn, turn in the account of your management, for you could no longer be, be manager. They were wasting the, his possessions. Wouldn't we say that? And so these guys are trying to figure out, well, how do you... Am I right about that? That's how I would read it, yeah. Okay. 
Has that changed anything? We don't look at some of the questions ahead of time, so we're just trying to help you see how we would process some of these things. So God's calling the Pharisees to account, basically, in this parable. Jesus is. Right, and he's trying to tell them you should be willing to... uh, you should be you should be making deals in the meantime, right? See, I think I think as I as I look at this passage, I see um, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to label the manager as God. I mean, the the owner as God. I'm going to look at the manager and seeing how Jesus is talking about the manager being shrewd. In some ways, in some ways, Daryl Bach could have a point here. To talk right. about how the manager, who's now going to be fired, is now being very lavish, and chances are he's not spending necessarily his his owner's money, but more so his money. So he's being generous towards this because he's setting himself up in case he gets fired. And so Jesus is very interesting where he says, uh, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealings with their own generations than the sons of... So now that is that is a very interesting statement because later on, I think this whole passage is about money. Jesus, at the end of the day, will say, um, you cannot serve both God and money. So I think here in this text, the deal would be, hey, let's be, let's be generous, exceedingly generous with those whom God has put before us. Yeah, well, exceedingly generous. The argument in verse 11, which I, I mean, I cut Crystal off, but it, it's from, this is a very common argument in, in, uh, in, the, in the scriptures. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Mm-hmm. In other words, look, this is the same kind of argument that's made that if if uh, you, you haven't been done well with this little, how it's it's from the lesser to the greater, yes. right. sort of argument. And so the the point of the parable seems to be that that yeah, you, you're um, you should be w- what you're doing now is is evidence for how you're going to be able to handle the greater. So you should be if you're not going to be lavish now, what why should we give you any more? Mm-hmm. But don't you think this parable is a, is pointing to to heaven? Like what kind? Like how are you planning now for the future? That maybe maybe I'm out here, but that that's how I was understanding what Jesus is saying. My only question is, how does this apply to the Pharisees? Well, I, so I, that's I, that's that's ultimately my. I mean, the Pharisees were known for their wealth and these things, and that's yes. that's ultimately where I want to push it though because I'm saying that contextually this is what this is what's going on in Luke's gospel at this point. Mm-hmm. And verse 14 right after this all the Pharisees respond to it and it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Yeah. Hence, so that was the point he's making. Yeah, so that's why I'm thinking it's a parable about money and generosity. Well that and they're I serving think, money. Yes. And so I think um, Jesus is showing look at how an unrighteous person who doesn't know God is trying to set himself up for the future, for his future. So then the question becomes, you who are rich, Pharisee, loaded, you who are rich, how are you setting yourself up for the kingdom that is to come? That's my point. You cannot serve both God and money because now your heart is pinned toward money than God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, be generous. Let your let your focus not be on your dollar, but let your focus be on God. So my and question so for you, Ezra, it? then, is how does this passage relate to what happens in, in Luke 15? 
is the, is the link that Luke is making here is, oh, he was talking to the Pharisees in Luke 15, and then here's another place that he is critical of the Pharisees. That's a could fair, he, that's a fair yeah, comment that he's shifting. Be... Or is he trying to say, look, you guys are complaining about these sinners coming to me, mm-hmm. right? But they're, they get it. The so, sinners, the sinners understand it. So, and I think, and I think Jesus' statement in verse 13, the end of 13b, you cannot serve God and money is the key. So what is the barrier that is preventing the Pharisees from coming to Christ? It's their dollar. That's why in verse 14, the Pharisees who are lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. They didn't like. Exactly. So Jesus is showing how, yeah, see, you Pharisees have now exposed the idol before you here. That your deal is money. It's what's preventing you from coming and look at these other people who are coming. But you're, you're not coming because it's your money that is preventing yeah. you. Yeah. So, but again, this is a very difficult passage to, to interpret because there's a lot of so, people who have gone back and forth. Right, but again, I think the main point that I'm making about it is regardless of how you're doing... I'm actually kind of heading off of the past the question that was asked by the, the listener yeah. by saying that if you're, if you're going to take this passage to say, hey, this could justify really bad business practices, I'm going to say, well, hold on, you got to look at the intent of the author mm-hmm. in the parable. What is he trying to do? And he's actually trying to chastise the Pharisee, Pharisees for not being faithful with the little. Mm. Okay? And understand what it is that Jesus' point is, given his particular background. And instead of taking each one of his parables as descriptors of exactly how one ought to live in the middle of a... You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And taking each thing he says in light of the whole canon and teaching of Scripture, like Jesus wouldn't tell you to be dishonest and to right. rip off people based no. on what it says in the whole rest of the Bible. So if that's not his point, then what is his point? Mm. You have to get at. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on to... Do you have any thoughts about that? We'd love to hear it. I mean, quite honestly, I mean, Andy is re- referencing, I think, a commentary that was done on Luke's Gospel by Daryl Bach, which is quite excellent. It's very it's very good. There's a, uh, there's the NIV application commentary yeah. uh, that Daryl Bach he does. Did the, he also did another the Baker, one. The Baker, one of the Baker series. The Baker series is probably it's the his, best. Yeah, that's it's his, the like, best magnum Luke. cum laude. Like, that thing's huge. Right. So... If you're interested in this, you can always look and find um, some good commentaries on it. And if you have some thoughts about it that we missed, love to hear from you. We're going to take on one more question here uh, before we end. This question is a follow-up from uh, last uh, uh, podcast in which uh, they want to follow up on uh, the Bethel and the apostolic apostolic leadership. It says, hello, uh, thanks for answering my question from last week. I have another question regarding church structure. I don't want to put too much focus on Bethel Church, but I read a book uh, called Culture and Honor written by Beth- a Bethel pastor, and they have an interesting way of church structure regarding their pastoral staff. They use uh, this verse, and these are common verses that they use, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which says, God, quote, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers, etc., they also use the verse Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 to 22. In fact, I would argue that this is probably the one that they use the most to support this idea that the head of the church should be 
uh, apostles and prophets, then teachers. Yeah. I was wondering what you think about how they are using these verses to support the structure of the church, and also what scriptures, doctrines does Northview use as a base to structure our church and staff? So the answer to the second question is the pastoral epistles, because they're dealing with the question that's at hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, does, how does one... So they mention things like elders and deacons. So we, which is we, interesting because in Ephesians, this passage and the first, right, they're not. They don't mention it. that. Yep. And so I, I actually would criticize the viewpoint that that Bethel in this case and that others like them have here. They're taking passages that don't address church structure and applying them in that way. So I'll start with First Corinthians twelve. First Corinthians twelve is talking not about church structure when it says first, second, third. The context here is showing what, it, to what degree do these particular gifts edify the body. The ranking structure that Paul is using here in this context is saying, look, because uh, up to this point he's saying there's a diversity of gifts and every gift matters, but then he said, but God has given to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, right? So what? wait a minute, how can it on the one hand be everybody's gift matters and now there's a first, second, third? Either they're saying, "Oh, yeah, he's he's giving you structures on how your local church ought to ought to function." No, he's he's actually saying these are the gifts that should be exhibited in the gathered assembly for the edification of those who are there. Just read the rest of the rest of chapter twelve into thirteen, which talks about love instead of showy gifts as being the main sign of spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And then in Roman in First uh, Corinthians fourteen, he'll go on, and his main point in that whole chapter is: look, tongues. Is is less than uh, less than prophecy, not as a gift, but as the level of of edification that it brings to the gathered assembly, yeah. and even gives. That's what he's talking about: the gathered assembly. When people come together, what kinds of gifts employed in that gathered assembly are going to edify people more? Mm-hmm. It is not talking about whether or not the how the how the organization of a church ought to function in terms of mm-hmm. its hierarchy, exactly, or what offices or things like. They're assuming that he's talking about offices here, where he's not. No, he's not even. He's talking about gifting here and and the employment of those things in the gathered assembly. So it's 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 a misreading of this text and making it say something. That it's not. Likewise, and you get to Ephesians two twenty, and it says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, Jesus being Himself the cornerstone. This is a historical statement. Right. That's not a statement of church structure. He's actually making a statement about how how God has gone about building His church in the past. Yeah, through the Old Testament right. prophets leading to the apostles. And yeah, Christ. right. Yeah. So it, they're both mystery. If you want to read in the Bible about where church structure is talked about. The pastoral epistles is the answer to that question, and it's not spoken of directly, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get in 1 Peter 2, you get elders elders uh, addressed, right? Shepherd the flock of God among you in 1 Peter 5. So... And Titus is... You don't Titus have... Is the most clear, wouldn't yeah, it be? Right. Paul says, I left you in Crete in order to set up churches, and this is how you do it. Right, yeah. to That's appoint it. elders, yeah. plural, by the way, in every town. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So... So you're supposed to have a plurality of elders. There seems to be a role called deacons in First Corinthians chapter, th- or sorry, First Timothy chapter three. So we can debate about how many elders and how how many deacons and that sort of stuff. 
but these seem to be the things that are identified in the New Testament as as the roles. And some people point back to Acts chapter 6 as the first deacons, you remember, where mm-hmm. Stephen and others were assigned so that the apostles could give themselves to the Word of God in prayer. We can debate about whether or not that's the beginning of the diaconate, as they call it. it but we do know from the pastoral epistles that that's what's, what's stated. Elders, deacons, and the elders seem to be gifted in lots of different ways, right? You can have elders who yeah. are gifted in all sorts of stuff. You actually have a passage in First Corinthians 5. It says that the elders who are the elders whose job is preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor, mm-hmm. right? So the main emphasis in there is more their character, right? right. In Titus oh. and Timothy, it's who they are That's as right. people, not necessarily their gifting. Right, and even the, the only indication you might get of the gifting would be that they're called apt to teach. But even in that, Titus one nine clarifies that to be actually they just need to they need to know their doctrine and be, be sound able in to yeah, yeah that's what he means by apt to teach and so yeah gifting is not part of the leadership of the church that's it, not ultimately should people who are gifted in leadership be in leadership in church sure absolutely so should people who are gifted in evangelism be part of mm-hmm. elder boards seems the crux to me of what's going on here is apostle um, and. Whether or not, you know, because what, really what they're doing when they're quoting this is saying, look, this is the top. Uh, uh, apostles and I'm, are and the I'm top, one of them. And I'm one of them. Uh, so how do we deal with that? How do, you, how do you wrestle with that, Jeff? You know, can you have apostles Bill today? Johnson, who's at Bethel, would say that I'm an apostle. Like you, you, Jeff, you? you yeah. Jeff, no, he you? would say, that he, they say that they identify, they identify the leaders of large, the largest churches in their areas as being the likely apostles of those regions. So mm-hmm. that's that's the way they go about that, and then they surround them with a group called prophets, and they have prophetic councils that get together and together identify what the the future is. I, they have, listen, a, they have a list of different. What things I'm suggesting that is do, that and a, not being ma- apostle, and by this I mean big A apostle. Mm-hmm. I don't mean now we're apostle, talking about biblical ascent, ascent one. I mean like we're talking about Paul and Apollos, and that. like yeah. I'm. What I'm suggesting is the big A apostles. Okay, are not around anymore. But do you they, think there's a distinction between qualif- a small A and a big A? I do, and because to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, one had to be big A apostle. One had to actually witness Christ, the resurrected Christ. Right. And th- well, this is the Paul problem, actually. Though. You say, you know, Paul. This was a big deal for Paul. He had to actually co- re- like continually argue for his apostolic authority. Authority. Yeah. Because lots of people thought, no, 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 no. You can't. You can't there. be. You can't be because you weren't there. And so my, my point is that Paul says that, look, I was one untimely born. That was the language yeah. that he uses. In other words, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. I came after the fact. What these guys are doing is establishing themselves now with that same kind of authority. So it's, it's, it's actually quite a dangerous prospect, to be honest with well, you. Well, that, that's the part that is concerning, isn't it? I mean, because one of the apostles... Big A apostles, and as by the Jeff way, I'll saying, identify First Corinthians fifteen makes this point right that Jesus appeared to the twelve. So who's that? The twelve disciples. what? Yep. Yeah, the twelve disciples. Yeah, or we're going to say twelve apostles. Yep, mm-hmm. right. With the A. That's right. Appeared to the twelve, and then to five hundred, and, so th- and then to the rest of the apostles. So what do you do there? Well, it, so my point is, look, there's a differentiation between those who were given authority in the church, the 12, who, by the way, according to, I think Matthew, they're going to sit on the thrones for, <laughs> there's, tw- well, there's 12, and then, and then there's 
there's a whole bunch of apostles, little little or a apostles. So I do those little or a have the same have the same authority as the twelve? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. They did not have that kind of authority. They were gifted in many ways as as church planters and messengers is the language. That's what an apostle is, right? It was it was interesting though when they lost one of the di- disciples yep. that they needed to figure out how are we gonna find a replacement for Judas. It, why? What's that? Well, because they they were looking for twelve. Why? I, I think that they're looking for twelve because this is representative of Israel. Absolutely, the twelve tribes of Israel. Absolutely. And right. I don't think it's I, as well. I think even the whole gospel. I mean, even the fact that Jesus was in the desert for forty days, right? I mean, this is right. all symbolic of sure. Israel. Um, the, so, but it needed to be an eyewitness, right? So, like, okay, who you know who qualifies as this big A apostle? And they had to, you know, go through that. And and I agree. Here, Paul, you know, had to argue for it, and why? Because it came with so much authority. And I think it's interesting that Peter actually says about Paul that what he wrote was scripture. Right. Um, and and this this to me is where things get concerning is because of the type of authority that was placed on a big A apostle, they they not only spoke with authority but they were writing scripture. Right, and they were given that promise in John fourteen. Right, you could lead you into all truth, and he's speaking to the mm-hmm. to the twelve at that moment. The Spirit will lead you into all truth and write down the things that He wants you to write down. So in other words, I, they were given the authority to write scripture. And that's yeah. when you and and, and quite honestly, the re, the way that they made canal, you know decisions about which books are going to be in the canon. When I say decisions, the churches as the books would come to them, the only ones that got a hearing, right, were the ones that were tied apostolically. That's right. Yeah. Right. So Mark is using Peter, mm-hmm. right? Matthew is one of them. Luke is using Paul, which was one of the reasons why you know Paul has to defend his apostolic authority, mm-hmm. because he's basically saying to them, "Look, I I, I count yeah. right because and then he get, and then he recounts how he was visited by mm-hmm. Christ, We're going to Damascus Road, right? Yes, <laughs> like I saw the resurrection. He appeared to me, mm-hmm. but this was a big deal for him, and he had to constantly argue it, which is weird to me now. Is that no that these guys claim apostolic leadership and they they claim oh well I'm an apostle because I'm a pastor of a big church or I yeah. heard from God and then you you test what they've heard from God and you know it's eighty percent seventy percent true maybe yeah but then they're reinterpreting scripture in places this is one of the things they would they'll argue that there is what's called a pastoral reading of the Bible and an apostolic reading of the Bible so a pastoral reading is what we're doing here when we t- we look at the context of a passage and what it was meant in its in its original setting. The apostolic reading of a passage is what I think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Because as an apostle, I get to read it in a new way for a yeah, new time. Nice. I have that kind of authority. And I'm like, what? So unhinged now from biblical authority, you get to say what you want, which is ironic because you're going to reject... Most of these guys are Protestant. Mm-hmm. You're going to reject the Pope's authority, mm-hmm. and yet you've set yourself up as, as, as a Pope. It's no wonder that... Most many of these churches go astray doctrinally in many ways. I mean, they say things about the Trinity and about Christ that just aren't true. It's very, very, yeah. it's very troubling. If, you, if you'd like to read more about this, um, take a look in you know, 1 Corinthians, particularly in chapter 9, Paul talks about requirements of apostleship. Uh, in chapter 15, he uh, um, talks about how he's the least of the apostles and, and makes an argument for his 
apostleship. And then in, in Peter, as Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about Paul and his writing uh, as, as being Scripture. Um, There's a great... We've recommended a book before that yeah, we have recommended. Yeah, we just recommended. God's Super Apostles is what it's called. Doug Guyvet, and I cannot remember the Holly co-author. Pivik. Holly, Holly Pivik. P-I-V-E-C. It's a fantastic uh, fantastic book. Yeah, it'll give you a good picture as uh, of what's called the New Apostolic Reformation, which is part of what Bill Johnson is a part of. Just so you know, also Ted Cruz, who's running for the president in the United States, is a big part of the New Apostolic Reformation. Oh, really? I hear, I, well, I've yeah. been hearing that there's actually a number right. uh, in politics right now that are part of what's yeah. often referred to as NAR, uh, right. New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, Reformation. Reformation, yeah, and they they there's a, some interesting aspects to their ministries, but the biggest piece is that they claim that that they are that apostolic that the church has not been able to function properly up to this point in history. We, in other words, we haven't been able to claim the culture completely, which is what they think that the you know Jesus started the victory, but we the church are supposed to complete it through and claim dominion over all these areas. We have not been able to do that up to this point because of we have not reinstituted the apostolic office. So if we if we reinstitute the apostolic office, all organize our churches underneath those particular apostles and do basically what they say, the church will finally be able to become what she is always meant to be, which is governor of the world, right? Mm-hmm. So. So they have these seven different areas over which the church is supposed to have dominion, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you can name them off. I mean, education, politics, media. There's seven, they call them seven mountains. And so as a result, you have to go and claim victory over each one of these seven mountains or work for, for ownership over those seven, seven mountains. And the way that we will achieve it is through submitting ourselves to the apostles who are current-day apostles like Bill Johnson and several others. Yeah. Well, that's all the time that, that we have That should freak you. Today. Everything I just said should freak you out. <laughs> I know, right? I intended <laughs> it to freak you out. It is. But I'm not being unfaithful in the retelling of it. I'm just but telling I think, you that's I think just the way if, it... if, if the listeners would, um, those who are interested, they purchase the book, God's Super Apostles, and just yeah. have a read, it'll, it'll be very enlightening to... To people, it'll actually open your eyes to a lot of things that you've right. probably heard. But it's a very uh, fair book, too, yes. by the way. Just mm-hmm. so you know, it's not written. It, it's uh, it's written by a professor at Biola University, which is very well right. respected. I mean, he's very fair. And Holly Pivik was a journalist, I think, mm-hmm. for quite a few years. So it's not that these it, these people are not you, they're not YouTubers. One of the things that's also helpful <laughs> about the book is that there's not a lot of structure to NAR. It's there, and there's a variance of, of views that mm-hmm. are held, and so they kind of help to put some structural understanding right. to what's going on, and to to help you to know how to navigate, even even identifying who some of the major leaders are, and what are some of the major organizations. What are, what are the, some of the major leaders? Can you, uh, well, Mike, Bill, Bitch, Mike Bickle at the International House of Prayers one. Well, that would that, that's a huge one that a lot, I think a lot of people are surprised by. Uh, yeah, IHOP, he's he's yeah. very very into it. Do you know of others? I know Chuck Pierce, who might be the name people, people know. He's out of St. Louis, I think. Yeah, he's well, big then, time. Of course, Bethel is, is a Yeah, is Bethel a is a big one out big here one, yeah. on the West Coast. Uh, I, I think I think Bethel would be the biggest name given, at least in our area. In our local, yeah. Yeah. In our local area, 
And then I think another thing that people need to be aware of is there's a new Bible translation that's been out lately called The Passion. And this is um, Brian Simons, I believe it is. He's involved with NAR too, isn't he? He is heavily. And and, and he's the one doing this translation work. Not a good... It's not, translation. Translation. it's not good. It's he, not a great. It's, I mean, it's 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 not a. It's, he adds in places that he should be adding, and he's and well added to the sense. fact that he's translating it by himself, and he fully admits he's not a trained scholar to do such. Yeah. He just believes that he was uh, visited by Jesus and given the commission to make this Bible right tra- to do this translation. So again, not trying to scare you, but these are things that you need to be aware of, and uh, we wanted just to uh, point out to you. That's all the time that we have, though, today. Uh, thank you for joining us. There, there are more questions that we'll get to. Continue to write us uh, here at The Extra Podcast. We'll see you next week.